Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think women feel quite acutely that as you age, you really are kind of put on the shelf in American society. I mean, we're a society that really values youth. And here's this woman who defied odds in almost every aspect of her career right up until the end where in her 80s, a time when women are literally on the dustbin of society, she becomes a cultural icon. I mean, it's just absolutely unimaginable when you think about it. That's Melissa Murray. She's an NYU professor of law and faculty director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network. Murray clerked for then-Judge Sonia Sotomayor when the justice served on the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Her scholarship has been recognized with many awards, including the Association of American Law School's Derek A. Bell Award for her extraordinary contribution to the study of law and social justice. Murray joins me today to talk about the glorious and notorious Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose death last Friday sent shockwaves through the nation. Today, we reflect on the life and legacy of one of the most influential Supreme Court justices we've ever known and the future of the highest court in the land. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. My name is Ron. I'm calling you from Sofia, Bulgaria, but I'm an American originally from Chicago. Uh, my question is, with the uh, Supreme Court with a number of Trump appointees, if there's a decision that needs to be made about the election, do those uh, justices need to recuse themselves? Love the show. Keep up the good work. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks, Ron. It's always great to hear from our fans in Bulgaria. So it's a great question and one that a lot of people are going to be asking. The quick answer to your question is they do not need to. Justices aren't required to recuse themselves from cases under any circumstances. They make the decision as to whether or not it is appropriate. Obviously, the rules of recusal are covered by law. In particular, there's a statute that addresses the question that you're asking, and it states kind of broadly the following. A federal judge shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned. And also it says, a judge should be disqualified where he has a personal bias or prejudice concerning a party or personal knowledge of disputed evidentiary facts concerning the proceeding. Now, in ordinary cases, sometimes a party can move to disqualify a judge. That judge makes a ruling and it can be appealed upwards. And sometimes judges get disqualified. I believe that motion was made with respect to the judge in the Michael Flynn case. So in that case, the lawyers for Michael Flynn wanted Judge Sullivan to disqualify himself or ask the appeals court to disqualify him. They declined to do so. When it comes to the Supreme Court, 
there's nowhere to appeal that, even if a party wants to disqualify a Supreme Court justice. And generally on matters like this, it's up to the justice. So there have been a lot of instances where justices have recused themselves, which makes sense, and some cases where they haven't and received criticism. Most commonly, justices recuse themselves if they have had some hand in the underlying case because of a previous job. Elena Kagan, for example, recused herself from a number of cases that she had some connection with because she was the Solicitor General of the United States before. Same was true of Thurgood Marshall. He recused himself on a regular basis for the same reason. He had been a Solicitor General under Lyndon Johnson. In a case that people are talking about a lot this week, the Virginia Military Institute sex discrimination case, whose majority opinion was written by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. In that case, it was seven to one. Only eight justices heard the case because Clarence Thomas, who was also on the Supreme Court at the time, recused himself because his son was at that very moment enrolled at VMI. Justices may also decide on their own to recuse themselves because they have a financial stake in one of the parties, or they have a family tie, or some other reason that could give the appearance of impropriety or bias. Now, sometimes justices refuse to recuse themselves, and they come under fire. That was true of the late Antonin Scalia, who was criticized in 2004 when he refused to recuse himself from a case involving Vice President Dick Cheney, with whom he had recently hunted and dined. There are other cases when justices have not recused themselves, even though they own some stock in one of the parties to a case. To give you an example of how common recusal is, though, in 2016, Supreme Court justices recused themselves around 180 times during one term. Going back to your question on what will happen with respect to a case on which the election may turn, it's my prediction that justices will not recuse themselves, no matter what the appearance. This question comes from Twitter user E.L. Cochan, who writes, Will you be explaining this whole anarchist city deal on your podcast? Hashtag AskPreet. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it's been head-scratching for a lot of people. To be clear for folks, you're referring to something that the president uh, did through the Department of Justice in the last few days. This past Monday, DOJ released a statement that identified three cities, New York City, Portland, and Seattle, as, quote, jurisdictions permitting violence and destruction of property, end quote, and also called them anarchist jurisdictions. And the suggestion is that those cities could lose federal funding after there have been protests against racism and police brutality in major cities and an uptick in some places in violence. As an initial matter, I should tell you that the designation, as sort of compelling as it sounds, anarchist city, has no meaning in any law that I'm aware of. It's just a a label, a slogan, a name-calling exercise taken on by the Department of Justice in the style of Donald Trump, as he does with all of his political rivals and enemies. So it's kind of a silly designation and also a meaningless designation. The second thing is, to the extent that the federal government wants to defund, and that's an interesting and controversial word in many contexts these days, to the extent the federal government wants to defund local jurisdictions, those cities in particular, it's kind of odd when the whole point is that there's rising violence and those cities, it is claimed, should be doing more with respect to that violence. In fact, the executive order that preceded this recent anarchist jurisdiction announcement said that he was threatening to withhold federal funding from cities where the administration said state and local officials have cut police department funding. So it's, it's unclear to me why you meet a cut with a further cut. So as a matter of common sense and logic, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It is also the case that, generally speaking, the federal government and Republicans who believe in federalism in particular don't micromanage local police departments. So that's another point. Here's the explanation that's given in this week's announcement. Quote, when state and local leaders impede their own law enforcement officers and agencies from doing their jobs, it endangers innocent citizens who deserve to be protected, including those who are trying to peacefully assemble and protest. We cannot allow federal tax dollars to be wasted 
when the safety of the citizenry hangs in the balance. That's a statement by William Barr. So what does this mean? To my mind, it's a political ploy in advance of the election that is attempting to be consistent with the president's declaration that he is the law and order president, although in so many contexts, I don't think he understands what law or order actually mean, and certainly not together. The only effect it will have is if it is used as a basis to actually go through with this threat of taking money away from New York City, Portland, and Seattle. And with respect to that, you can ask any legal expert around. The president can't just do that arbitrarily and capriciously on his own. The power of the purse belongs to the Congress. And although there are circumstances in which federal funding can be reasonably tied to certain relevant conditions and reasonable conditions, you can't coerce local governments, especially in a, in a political way, to do the federal government's bidding. We have federalism in this country, which Republicans used to understand. Numerous Supreme Court cases have held that you can't be coercive when conditioning funding from the federal government to local governments. As John Roberts once wrote in the Supreme Court opinion on this issue, you can't put a gun to the head of the municipality. As a practical matter too, it's not the case that there's just you know one program and one stream of money that comes to New York City, for example, from the federal government. There's an array and an assortment of funding streams and different kinds of grants and programs. And in order to accomplish this obnoxious defunding that the president wants to do, he would have to direct that particular streams that are great in number be stopped. In any event, if the administration tries to stop the funding of any of these streams to these cities, the mayors of all three places have said they will file legal action. And as far as I can tell, the cities will probably prevail. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user Hoffbeezy. Can you comment on Bill Barr demeaning line prosecutors in public? Hashtag AskPreet. So I've talked about this a little bit in some other places and on television, but I don't get tired of talking about it because it's one of the most obnoxious and counterproductive things that the attorney general has said. And he said a lot of things that fall into that category. In a speech he gave last week, he tried to infantilize federal prosecutors within the Justice Department. He said, quote, Name one successful organization where the lowest level employees' decisions are deemed sacrosanct. There aren't any. Letting the most junior members set the agenda might be a good philosophy for a Montessori preschool, but it's no way to run a federal agency, end quote. Why on earth a leader of any agency or any organization, much less the Department of Justice, would feel the need to criticize in that childish way the backbone of the department, the people who do the work, the people who are the public servants, the people who sacrifice a lot to keep the country safe, and to enforce the laws. Why you would do that as a simple leadership matter is beyond me. And why you would make such a straw man argument is also beyond me. No one has suggested anywhere that the lowest level employees of the Department of Justice or any other agency are supposed to set the agenda for the entire department. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen at the Department of Justice. It doesn't happen at the Department of Transportation. It's a complete distraction, straw man argument by an attorney general who seems to be irritated and irritable because of the criticism that he gets. The criticism of Bill Barr is not that the lowest level people in the Department of Justice should be setting the agenda. The criticism is that the attorney general should not willy-nilly be interfering only in those cases that affect associates of the president, like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. In both of those cases, by the way, it wasn't the junior most folks who were making the decisions or setting the agenda. They were doing it in coordination with supervisors and their supervisors and the supervisors of the supervisors, which is true in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. I sometimes get the question, you know, what do you think this does to morale in the department? I've talked to a lot of folks and they're not happy and they're distressed about it. But contrary to Barr's assertion that they are like preschoolers, they're actually adults and they're very mature and they're very professional. And although they don't like it and they think it's dumb and they think it's silly and they think it's counterproductive, 
They keep their heads down and they do their work like they always have. But those comments by Bill Barr as both a leader and a thinker are ridiculous. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. My guest today is Melissa Murray. She's a law professor at NYU and a colleague of mine, where she focuses on family law, constitutional law, and reproductive justice. Last Friday, we suffered a great loss. News of the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg gripped the nation as thousands gathered outside the Supreme Court to pay homage to her incredible life dedicated to fighting injustice. Today, Professor Murray and I honor the notorious RBG and the mountains she moved in her legal career. We also look ahead to the future of the Supreme Court. Melissa Murray, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are you? I always begin the interview with, how are you? And it's a more complicated question than it used to be. Well, um, you know, these are difficult times, I think, for everyone. I think folks with kids at home doing remote school are feeling it a little bit more acutely. Um, I know I am. I am a pretty good law professor. I think I'm a pretty struggling fourth grade teacher, but I'm, I'm getting by. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a it's an arduous and difficult thing for all of us. And just when you thought it couldn't get worse, and just when you thought there couldn't be more bad news, the news broke on Friday night about the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. W- where were you when you learned the news? So I was out running in our neighborhood and just started getting a flurry of texts, which you know interrupt your the, like the music that you're listening to if you're running. And so I stopped and I saw this, and you know it was just immediately devastating. And I turned and came home right away, um, knowing that you know there there would just be lots of media attention and lots of requests to sort of say something about Justice Ginsburg and her legacy. Were you surprised? I mean, I, the, the interesting thing, our colleague um, and friend Anne and I were discussing the other day, that it came as a shock, even though everyone knew that she had deteriorating health and she had this fight with cancer and she was 87 years old. Was it shock? Did it come as a shock to you? So, I mean, that's sort of the thing. I mean, we were all anticipating it, um, especially after... July, when the court released that statement about her recurrence, the recurrence of her cancer, and the the way the statement was phrased, and they talked about, you know, the lesions on her liver, it it definitely seemed as though it was metastasized cancer. So 
you know, obviously in a situation like that, it, it seems like it's only a matter of time, but this was a woman who had beat back cancer so many times and was such a survivor that surely she would hold on until November 3rd. I mean, she certainly understood the stakes. Um, it was clear in her sort of dying declaration to her granddaughter that she understood the stakes. And we all, I think, just imagined that she would hold on if she could. So a number of people have made the following observation to me. You know, obviously everyone imagined that they would be upset and sad upon the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but multiple people have said to me, and I include myself in this, they reacted more strongly than they expected that they would. It was more devastating than they expected. Did you have that feeling? And do you know why that might be? Well, certainly I think everyone felt devastated. I mean, it's a loss of an enormous figure in American legal culture and certainly someone whose legacy on the law is just enormous. But I think given the times, it feels the devastation is amplified just because of the moment we are living in. You know, we are in the middle of an election. Um, the last time we had something like this, and it wasn't exactly like this, but, you know, sort of like this, there was such a rush to fill the seat. And the consequences of doing so really were profound. Um, you know, that really solidified a five to four conservative majority, a bare majority on the court. And I think everyone understands that the passing of Justice Ginsburg at a time when the Republicans control both the presidency and the Senate means that that bare majority is now going to become a supermajority. Yeah. And it's sort of, it's interesting with the Supreme Court justice. Anytime a Supreme Court justice passes while in office, there doesn't seem to be enough time to honor their legacy and pause on what their contributions have been because immediately so much is at stake. Attention turns to who the replacement will be. Do, do you think Supreme Court justices are given a little bit of short shrift because of that? I think it depends on the moment. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to 2016 when Justice Scalia passed away in February. You know, it was a full month later that President Obama named Merrick Garland as his replacement. And I think in that period of time, um, there was some excavation of Justice Scalia's legacy, um, his contributions to the conservative legal movement. All of those things were hashed out. Um, here, I feel like Justice Ginsburg barely got 24 hours before you know, we were talking about who would replace her and that you know there were rallies across the country where President Trump would speak and the response would be, fill that seat, fill that seat. So there's a way in which um, I think we gave her short shrift and maybe we give all justices who die in office short shrift, but it did seem at least that in this particular case, there was a kind of callous political rhetoric that was sort of fused around it. Um, and again, I think it's because the election really is upon us. We are actually in the throes of the election right now as people are early voting. I think early voting began in some places on that day, on the day she passed. Yes. Why do you think Justice Ginsburg meant so much to young women? I mean, it's, so I, I mean, I can, I can just sort of speak to my own experience and I am obviously not a young woman, but, um, <laughs> My joints say otherwise, but, you know, like she had this really fantastic career as a woman's rights litigator, even before she came to the court. And if she had done nothing more, um, but have that career as a litigator, 
that would have been a legacy of enormous consequence. But then, of course, she did go on to the court as the second woman to be a justice. And she had a really fantastic career, not necessarily um, in the majority all of the time. I think her most notable majority opinion was her opinion in United States versus Virginia. But as the court moved to the right, she really became a kind of liberal lion anchoring that liberal block on the court. And her dissents really were fierce and fabulous. They, of course, spawned this meme, the notorious RBG. And I think that also helped root her in popular culture and gave her a new audience with young women. And I I know it tickled her to know that so many women of this next generation were reading her work and admiring her. But, you know, I think there's also this idea that, you know, I think women feel quite acutely that as you age, you really are kind of put on the shelf in American society. I mean, we're a society that really values youth. And here's this woman who defied odds in almost every aspect of her career right up until the end where in her 80s, a time when women are literally on the dustbin of society, she becomes a cultural icon. I mean, it's just absolutely unimaginable when you think about it. I think it was probably mostly because of her TikTok, right? That's a joke. I don't think she had it. <laughs> I, I barely know what TikTok is. Uh, I see all the TikTok videos when they get posted to Twitter, like the old guy I am. <laughs> yeah, t- Twitter is Twitter is definitely a 40-something social media platform. Can you explain something to people? Most of our listeners are not lawyers, but they're very thoughtful citizens. And everyone keeps talking about the quote-unquote fiery dissents of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Explain to folks why dissents can be important and why they're not just sort of cranky memos of no consequence, because by definition, if you're writing the dissent, your side lost. Why are they important and why were Ginsburg's important? So the dissents are often, again, the losing side of any legal battle. But again, there are moments and shifts in the sort of landscape of the law and things can change and there can be incremental shifts, there can be lurching shifts and dissents may actually presage one of those kinds of movements in the law. So, you know, if you think about it, um, Brown versus Board of Education is in 1954, but Earlier than that, in the 1890s, when the court heard Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the case that cemented separate but equal, there was a dissent from Justice John Harlan that said that this case, the decisions, separate but equal, was absolutely wrong and had no place in the Constitution. And it wasn't until 1954 in Brown, but when Brown was decided, they invoked that language, the language of that Plessy dissent in striking down Jim Crow and separate but equal. So these dissents can actually point the way to a shift in the law. And certainly Justice Ginsburg thought about them in that way. Um, But they can also have, I think, another kind of um, important repercussion in that they are a way for the dissenting members of the court to speak to the people and to other institutions. And I think that's critically important here. Um, They are, I think, what Lonnie Guineer and Gerald Torres might call a kind of demos prudence, like something for the people, not necessarily for the court. And Ginsburg really, I think, made the most of her dissents in that respect. So in this case about um, equal pay, the Lily Ledbetter case, she was very much in the minority. Lily Ledbetter was a worker at a Goodyear plant, I believe in Alabama, and she learned very late in her career 
that throughout her career, she had been underpaid relative to her male colleagues, and she tried to sue, but her claim was time barred. And that was the issue before the court, whether she could bring a claim or whether she was out of time because the statute of limitations had elapsed. The court, in an opinion written by Justice Alito, said that she was time barred. There's nothing they could do about it. And Justice Ginsburg wrote this fiery dissent, which she read from the bench in its entirety, where she not only chastised her colleagues for not understanding how discrimination worked on the ground and and specifically how gender discrimination worked. And this was really important because at the time she was the lone woman on the court. This was during that period between 2005 and 2009, um, between when Justice O'Connor had retired and before Justice Sotomayor came to the court. She was the only woman. And she basically rebuked her male colleagues for not understanding how easy it is for women to be underpaid and never know it because nobody talks about salary. It's just not done. Um, But more than just chastising her colleagues, she spoke to Congress and she made it clear, this court will offer working Americans no quarter. Today's decision counsels sue early on when it is uncertain whether discrimination accounts for the pay disparity you are beginning to experience. Indeed, initially, you may not know that men are receiving more for substantially similar work. Of course, you are likely to lose such a less-than-fully-baked case. If you sue only when the pay disparity becomes steady and large enough to enable you to mount a winnable case, you will be cut off at the court's threshold for suing too late. The ball is really in Congress's court, and Congress heard her. And they passed the Lily Better Fair Pay Act, and then President Obama signed it into law in 2009 as his first official legislative act as president. In some sense, are dissents sometimes also directed at the majority justices so that even though in that case the dissenter has lost by definition, that it might moderate or regulate the manner of thinking of the majority justices in future cases? Certainly, um, or even in just that particular case. So, you know, the strength of a dissent may prompt the justices and the majority to temper um, or carve back a little bit um, some of their position in the majority opinion. So they can be incredibly influential and They can also be a way of calling the majority out, um, not just to other colleagues, but again, to the people. So if you think about her 2013 dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, she was really speaking and bringing it to the chief justice. Chief Justice Roberts wrote that opinion dismantling the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And he argued that these preclearance provisions were no longer needed because in the United States, and especially in the South, there had been record numbers of minorities going to the polls and successfully casting their ballots. And for that reason, he said, we don't need this anymore. We don't need these vestiges of a segregated past. We no longer live in that world. And she wrote this really pointed dissent in which she said to the chief justice and and to the world, this whole logic that you've offered in this majority opinion is essentially like throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And it was a devastating critique, and it's the one that spawned that notorious RBG meme. The great man who led the march from Selma to Montgomery and there called for the passage of the Voting Rights Act foresaw progress. 
even in Alabama. The arc of the moral universe is long, he said, but it bends toward justice if there is a steadfast commitment to see the task through to completion. That commitment has been disserved by today's decision. Right, and it's very quotable for ordinary people who may not be scholars of the Constitution. Which well, I everyone guess, understands what that means, to throw out your umbrella in a rainstorm. You know, there are discussions of which justices over time are the best writers, and sometimes the question is writing for whom. As anyone who's gone to law school knows, there are there are judicial opinions that are very good and smart, but that are not really comprehensible to lay people. And then there are those that are comprehensible to everyone who's literate. And she tended to write a lot of those. I think that's exactly right. Um, she was very precise about her language, um, like an exacting editor. I think her clerks make that clear. And in the latter part of her career on the court, there were often times when she may have dissented alone or in tandem with Justice Sotomayor. So they didn't always get the entire liberal wing of the court to join them. Um, but there were things I think she felt had to be said um, for the record, for the people, and to make sure that the people understood that at least some quarter of the court heard them and understood what their issues and the stakes of this particular case were for them. I want to talk about some features of Justice Ginsburg's career strategy, philosophy of litigation, and also uh, jurisprudence. And so one thing that's been said about her is that she's very strategic, which is interesting because it's it's not necessarily the thing that you hear about a justice who's supposed to be, in the words of John Roberts, calling balls and strikes. Can you speak a little bit to this quality of strategic vision she had both as a litigator and also as a justice? Sure. But before I say anything about Justice Ginsburg and her strategery, if you will, um, (laughs) that Roberts quote is so vexing (laughs) for so many reasons. Um, I I said it slightly ironically. I was trying to be ironical in my in my voice. (laughs) It just comes up over and over again, like judges are supposed to call balls and strikes. Um, What the quote fails to capture is that it's the umpire who actually delineates the strike zone and there is judgment in that. So this idea that, you know, being a judge or a justice is this macro shift F5, uh, you know, affirm shift F6, reject or reverse. That's just not how it works. And, and he knows that. So, you know, but, let's it, just but it's a very effective aside. thing. It's a very effective thing to say at a confirmation hearing. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, there's another one who understands what it means to speak to the people and to speak to certain audiences. But you know, Justice Ginsburg, as a litigator, was incredibly savvy. And you know, one of the things that I think people don't recognize was that when she graduated from law school at the top of her class at Columbia, she could not find a job. She eventually received a clerkship on the Southern District of New York, but only after one of her professors threatened the judge with never sending him a clerk again if he refused to at least give her a chance to work for him. When she ended that clerkship, again, employment prospects were pretty slim pickings. So she went to Sweden, where she was given the opportunity to do a project on Swedish civil procedure. And in order to do that, She became fluent in Swedish, and she really immersed herself in the procedural aspects of the Swedish civil courts. And while she was there in Sweden, it was at a time when Sweden was really undergoing a kind of revolution in its understanding of gender and gender roles. And they had introduced certain legislative provisions that gave women um, certain benefits for child-rearing and whatnot. And the hope was that they could democratize caregiving within the family. But the problem, of course, was that even as they had given these benefits to women, 
they hadn't done it for men. And so women continue to bear the burden of caregiving um, and family responsibilities in Sweden. And so they began to think about how that might be shared more equally. And they started doing more legislative interventions that would bring men into the work of the family, providing care, doing the kind of family responsibilities that women had previously done. And she was there observing all of this. And it really informed her thinking about the law when she came back to the United States. So when she joined the ACLU Women's Rights Project, one of the things that she began doing as she was litigating these cases to dismantle the sex-based classifications that were everywhere in American law was she began to use male plaintiffs as opposed to women plaintiffs. And the idea behind this, I thought, was you know, really extraordinary. Um, some have said that she, you know, she wanted to give the male justices figures with whom they could identify, but these men were not men that the justices could identify. Um, you know, the justices were not performing childcare or raising children by themselves as some of her plaintiffs were. Um, they weren't caring for elderly parents on their own. So these were not men that the justices could really identify with, but she wanted to make the case that these sex-based classifications that clearly burden women also less obviously burdened men. Um, They locked women into a particular role and and undid it ostensibly for women's protection. Um, But more importantly, they solidified these gender roles that posited women as homebound caregivers and men as breadwinners. And if you were a woman who wanted to be a breadwinner or a man who wanted to provide caregiving in the home, these laws completely shut you out. So they created these stereotypes. They locked people into these particular sex roles, and they really gave them no choice about how they would live their lives within the family. And it was a really brilliant strategy, um, not one that everyone, I think, immediately understood. I think feminists initially critiqued it as being a kind of formal, hollow equality rooted in the needs of men. But I think what she was really trying to do was to sort of disestablish these familial roles and the gendered stereotypes that undergirded them and make all of the options available to everyone. And you saw this come to fruition in that 1996 case, United States versus Virginia, her first major opinion for the court in which she struck down the Virginia Military Institute's um, policy of denying women admission to the school. Um, It was an all-male institution. And she said, There are probably lots of women who do not want to attend VMI, do not want any part of its adversative training methods. But if there's one woman who wants to do this, then that one woman really needs to have a shot. And Virginia cannot get away with having a separate but equal lady military college on the side. It has to make VMI available to anyone who wants to try. Another feature, and maybe this is part of her strategic approach to the law, but another feature of her approach was incrementalism. And I've been thinking about that a lot since she passed, because in our very politically fraught country at this moment, and we have an election coming up, as you said, there are people who want very substantial change in a lot of things, including criminal justice and with respect to climate policy and all sorts of things. And, you know, particularly among young people, there is an urgency about things And people want to change things quickly. And the word incrementalism typically is not associated with, you know, quick change. This idea of being incremental, is that something that is necessary 
only because the law is so static and there's so much gravitational pull of precedence. I guess speak, speak to this idea of incrementalism that was smart and savvy and strategic, as you've been saying, in a world in which nobody wants to be incremental. Yeah. So I think one thing that gets lost in the sort of notorious RBG popular culture vision of her is that she was an institutionalist, right? I mean, she really believed in institutions. It was why she was a lawyer. Um, you know, she said she was inspired by the work that lawyers did during the Red Scare. Um, you know, she never said, like, I'm ins- I was inspired by the protests about the Red Scare, but like about how lawyers could actually make something happen. And the law is by its nature, a kind of incremental tool for doing that. Um, you know, it builds on itself over time. Uh, precedent is really important. So it's not surprising that in her role as a justice and in, in her thinking about the law, she was more incremental and maybe more incremental than those outside of the court would have liked for her to be. And, and you know, we are in a particularly profound moment I will say for those who are arguing for more lurching change, part of it, I think, is animated by the fact that the court, as we have seen, at least over the last 10 years, even as it professes to be incrementalist in its sort of work and and how it does its work, the outcomes actually are more lurching than perhaps we appreciate. So, you know, I'm thinking about... um, the recent cases over public sector unions, for example, uh, it, the case that was the precedent there, Abood, was a 1973 case, and it was pretty much settled law until the Roberts Court came in, and I think around 2016, and maybe a little bit before that, um, 2014, and they began sort of chipping away at it incrementally, but really calling this precedent into question And then by 2018, having laid the groundwork in three earlier cases in rapid succession, they just overruled Abood. So, you know, there's a way in which incrementalism can actually mask a lurching shift in the way the law works. Like no one could have imagined 10 years ago that we would be in the situation that we are in now vis-a-vis public sector unions that was something that was done incrementally, but done in rapid fire and quickly moved the court to the right on labor issues. And so there are ways in which I think those calling for more extreme change are responding to the abuses of incrementalism to actually affect these more lurching shifts. Is there also something to be said for the idea that, especially in the law that relies on precedent and decisions can become binding, that if you move too quickly and you present an issue too soon, to a, a sort of unreceptive, a non-receptive court, especially the Supreme Court, that you might wind up with bad law, worse law than you might have otherwise? Well, I think that's certainly the case. And I think Justice Ginsburg really understood that during her time as a litigator. You know, when she was litigating these sex discrimination cases before the court, um, it was in the wake of the civil rights movement and Thurgood Marshall's efforts to get race read into the Constitution in a way that would help the civil rights movement combat racial discrimination. And, you know, at the time when Marshall was litigating, strict scrutiny seemed like the perfect vehicle, like the idea that claims based on race should be reviewed more strictly by the court made a lot of sense because there were so many explicitly 
racial classifications on the books. Like Jim Crow was just replete with explicitly racial classifications. Um, And as time went on by the 1970s, you began to sort of see perhaps what you might call second generation discrimination claims that where the laws in question were not facially race-based, they were neutral on their face, but they would have disparate impact on particular groups, whether it was African-Americans or women or whatever. And the real question there was, you know, could you use strict scrutiny? Could you not use strict scrutiny? It was also at the same time when the court was beginning to take up challenges to race-conscious remedial efforts like affirmative action. And the question there was, you know, would you use strict scrutiny or would you use some lesser standard because the use of race was benign in nature and, you know, using strict scrutiny would certainly doom these affirmative action programs. And Ginsburg was sort of in that milieu watching this and arguing for a particular standard for women's rights. And, you know, she initially pushed for strict scrutiny. Um, she got very close in 1973's Frontiero versus Richardson, where a plurality of the court said that gender-based classifications like race should be reviewed under strict scrutiny. But in the end, um, the court ultimately settled on intermediate scrutiny. And I think she was actually okay with that because she saw over time how strict scrutiny could be used against remedial efforts and was not available in claims of disparate impact. And so maybe something in the middle might actually be more helpful for issues of gender discrimination. So, you know, I think just being able to watch the law unfold, and certainly in the case of civil rights, this was happening over a very short period of time, she was able to maybe modulate her strategy and the strategy for women's rights over time. I want to shift and and talk about another case, and then we'll talk about the future that you wrote about. In 2012, you wrote a paper about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's advocacy in a particular case. And the question presented in the case from 1977 was essentially, was the death penalty a proportional punishment for the crime of raping an adult woman? And my question to you is, why did that interest you? Why were you writing about that? And what was Ginsburg's view? So it's actually a really terrific story that's rooted in my teaching. Um, At the time I was writing this, um, or before I was writing it, I was teaching a small section of criminal law at the University of California, Berkeley. And there was a note in the criminal law case book about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and this brief in Coker versus Georgia. That was the 1977 case. And I don't recall assigning the note to the class, but after class, one of my students, um, a young man named Cameron, came up to me and asked, you know, why would Ruth Bader Ginsburg be interested? Like, I don't even understand how this has anything to do with gender. Um, You know, we'd been talking about the death penalty and the book presented it in the context of race. How does this have anything to do with what Ginsburg is associated with, which is gender? And I have to confess, and I confess to the students, I didn't know. And I was like, we should find out. And so I went back, I began researching it. Um, At the same time, I was invited to participate in this event at Yale Law School, um, inaugurating their Gruber lecture. And Justice Ginsburg was to be the inaugural honoree. And she was going to, you know, the whole symposium was sort of centered around her work. And as I dug into researching this question for Cameron, I learned all about how Justice Ginsburg's advocacy in this death penalty case was rooted not just in 
concerns about women, but also concerns about the intersection of race and gender and how it was deployed in the context of the death penalty. And I knew immediately that not only had I found an answer for Cameron, but I found something that I wanted to contribute to this symposium about Justice Ginsburg. And basically, I wrote a paper explaining that you know, one of the critiques that has been lodged against her, especially in recent years, is that her feminism was inattentive to questions of race and wasn't intersectional enough. And I think if you read this brief, you will clearly see that she understood the intersectional implications of sex discrimination and, and how race and sex discrimination often worked in tandem with each other. You know, she argued that the death penalty for rape not only credited this idea that women were the property of their fathers and husbands, but that in actually levying the death penalty, um, it was more often levied against African-American defendants who were accused of raping white women. It was a way of sort of shoring up a kind of sexual hierarchy in which white women's purity was really valorized and Black men's sexuality was understood as deeply, deeply threatening. And you know, just getting a sense of that, you could see that her feminism was not as limited as detractors had claimed that, you know, there were glimmers of intersectionality at a time when that wasn't even part of our vernacular. And so I wrote this piece, presented it at Yale Law School, gave credit to Cameron for inspiring it, um, and then heard Justice Ginsburg's comments. And, you know, she wrote me this very lovely note where she thanked me for surfacing these connections between race and gender, because that clearly, in her view, had been her intent in writing the brief. So I want to talk about the future. There's the immediate future and what Ginsburg's passing and the departure from the court mean. And then there's a sort of the longer term. I, I kind of want to look at the a little bit of the longer term first, and we'll get back to things like the Affordable Care Act in a moment. So I guess what's on a lot of people's minds, obviously this depends a little bit on who the replacement is and if that person gets confirmed. Roe v. Wade and reproductive rights are people who say that that ruling and those rights that people have become accustomed to in the United States, they're really out the window in a short period of time, or is that overstatement? So I don't think it is an overstatement. Um, you know, I think it's worth noting that Roe versus Wade exists as a precedent, but it is pretty much desiccated substantively. You know, it it was sort of hobbled in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, There was an effort, I think, in 2016 to kind of put some teeth behind the Casey standard and, you know, make courts really interrogate the intentions of legislatures when they passed abortion restrictions. Um, In this, just this last term in uh, the June Medical Services case, We saw the chief justice, um, in a nod to stare decisis, say that he would vote with the liberal wing to strike down a Louisiana abortion restriction because it was virtually identical to the Texas restriction the court had struck down in 2016. Um, But in his opinion, where he purports to follow precedent, he actually guts the precedent that the 2016 case put in place, which was intended to put some teeth around the standard. He says that, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. So, you know, there's a way in which all of these abortion precedents stand, but they're kind of a Potemkin village in which, you know, there really isn't anything behind it. Like, you know, a strong wind could overturn this. And more importantly, I think the chief justice's decision to vote with the liberal wing just this past June 
likely had something to do with not just the fact that the court had recently heard a challenge to a similar law, but that the court was very precariously balanced at 5-4, five conservatives to four liberals. Going forward, the liberal wing has lost one person, so it's now at three, and the conservatives will surely pick up another seat, giving them a six to three super majority. It's unclear with that kind of balance on the court or lack of balance, so to speak, that we are going to see the kind of compromise efforts from someone like Chief Justice Roberts that we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, it's unclear whether Chief Justice Roberts will even be the swing justice in a position to make those kinds of overtures to the other side going forward. Um, So this is going to become a solidly conservative court. It will have three Trump appointees. President Trump famously vowed to appoint nominees who would overturn Roe versus Wade. And I think in this respect, um, he has been true to his word. I think there are likely certainly five votes on the court to hollow out Roe and possibly five and maybe now six to overturn it entirely. How does this compare to the last time that I think something this dramatic happened, um, and maybe I'm forgetting one in between, but when Thurgood Marshall was replaced by Clarence Thomas. How do you compare this to that? Well, so when Justice Thomas joined the court, um, I'm not sure that the court was at that point even as skewed so far to the right as it is now. I mean, you know, there were definitely members of the court who were appointed by Republican justices, but they were not necessarily conservative in the way that we understand that today. I mean, the justices that we have on the court now really were raised in the conservative legal movement, right? So this is, you know, the rise of a movement that really happened from the 1980s forward. And, you know, Justice Thomas was certainly part of that. And maybe he is the introduction of that model of justice to the court. But, you know, folks like Harry Blackman, um, Warren Burger, I mean, they were sort of conservative, like pro-business Republicans, but they weren't steeped in a movement in the way that the members of the conservative wing are now. And, you know, these were justices who were vetted by members of the conservative legal movement, the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, Leonard Leo, like they were all instrumental in selecting these individuals. So, you know, they come with a kind of training and um, credentialing that is very similar um, and and speak to a particular kind of conservatism. So I think that's one thing that's really different. I think we will see in this particular nomination the same kind of dynamic we saw with the Thomas nomination. You know, Justice Thomas was nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was the first African-American to sit on the court. And there was a lot of pressure, I think, on President George H.W. Bush to similarly appoint an African-American to fill the Marshall seat. But, you know, the question of identity is only one question. I I don't think anyone could say that although Justice Thomas is African-American, his sensibilities about jurisprudence are similar to those of Justice Marshall. In fact, some might argue they are 180 degrees from Justice Marshall. And so in the same way, A woman may be nominated to replace Justice Ginsburg, but I doubt that that woman, because of why she is being selected, um, will bring to the job the same sensibilities as Justice Ginsburg did. Yeah, you tweeted, I'm going to quote back a tweet that you posted recently, (laughs) quote, the nominee will be a woman, and that's where the similarities will begin and end, which is essentially what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's right. Again, I think 
that's purposeful. It's going to be very hard for Democratic senators to vote against a woman to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat. Um, you know, if the woman also happens to be a woman of color, I think that makes it doubly difficult. But, you know, make no mistake about it. This is not going to be a jurist in the mold of Justice Ginsburg. Can we go back to Roe for a second and reproductive rights? Can you explain to folks what is the posture in which in the sort of near term or medium term that this group of justices, five or six votes, probably five, who are prepared to overturn Roe, in what context will that happen? And if that happens, just, you know, given what the, the litigations are around the country, and the day after that decision, is there some circumstance in which people will no longer be able to get abortions because of a Supreme Court decision in the medium term? So that's, it's a terrific question. Um, you know, right now, there is no case on the court's docket for OT 2020 that would present a frontal challenge to Roe versus Wade. And to be clear, the June Medical Services case was not a frontal challenge to Roe. But there are lots of cases percolating at the lower federal courts where, you know, it is worth mentioning the president has been incredibly successful in packing the lower federal courts with young conservative judges who, in, in the manner of his current appointees on the court, you know, have some antipathy for abortion and reproductive rights. So we're seeing a lot of cases percolating up. These can be challenges to those heartbeat bills that we saw just a couple of years ago proliferating around the country. These are laws that prohibit abortion at the time that a heartbeat can be identified. And that can be as early as six weeks in some cases when a woman might not even know that she is pregnant. Um, so there are questions on whether or not that is a pre-viability ban in violation of Roe. And so that could present a frontal challenge. There have also been throughout the country um, a proliferation of what I call trait discrimination abortion restrictions, whereby various states, and there was also an effort to make this a federal law as well, but to prohibit abortion for the purposes of sex selection, race selection, or in the event that a fetal abnormality or disability was detected. And there was a case in 2019 out of Indiana that came before the court that would have challenged one of these trait selection laws. And the court did not grant cert on it, but it prompted a really interesting separate writing from Justice Thomas, who argued that those kinds of trait selection laws were merely the state's way of um, a modest attempt, he said, by the state, in this case, Indiana, to prevent abortion from becoming a tool of eugenics. And, and in that opinion, he went on to link abortion to the eugenics movement and the birth control movement, which he said was also shot through with efforts to basically curb reproduction among undesirable minorities. And so, you know, I, I write, I've written this paper um, that's coming out in the Harvard Law Review arguing that the introduction of race as an element in abortion by Justice Thomas in this concurrence, and the concurrence has been picked up in a number of lower court opinions, is really interesting because until now, there has been no really successful effort to formally overrule Roe versus Wade. And, you know, people have argued that it's untethered to the Constitution, it's untethered in constitutional text, it's immoral, blah, 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 on and on. But they've never been able to completely overrule it. One of the, I think, special factors that has been used in other contexts to overrule settled precedent 
is the introduction of some kind of racial narrative around the precedent or the law that the precedent upholds. Like, so for example, if you think about, um, Trump versus Hawaii, where the court discredits and formally disavows Korematsu, Chief Justice Roberts talks about that opinion was racist when it was decided. Um, just this last term, there was a case, Ramos versus Louisiana, in which the court struck down Louisiana's non-unanimous jury law, which had been in place since Reconstruction and had been upheld in a case called Apodaca from the 1970s. Um, the court in striking it down just this year talked about how the Apodaca court had failed to appreciate the racist origins of this rule. And so I think there's this really interesting moment where Justice Thomas's effort to read race into the origin story of abortion and to talk about abortion and its disparate impact on minority communities may also be not just an effort to uphold these trait selection laws, but more more provocatively, an effort to provide a new justification for striking down Roe. Right. In a sort of uh, strategic manner. But so, so take us through the following. Let's say one of these heartbeat bills gets decided in a particular way in the lower courts and they, one or more cases, wind their way up, wend their way. I don't know if it's wind their way or wend their way. I think wind. they both work. I think it's wend. wend. But wind also can be, I don't know. Possibly. Depends to, I'll, on the case. <laughs> I'll have to think about wend and wind. And the Supreme Court agrees to hear at some point in the future, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, one of these cases that turns on the constitutionality of a heartbeat bill and the Supreme Court rules five to four, which seems to be a a possibility, if not a likelihood, that notwithstanding Roe, no abortion once a heartbeat is detected. That case comes down. What does Congress do? What do doctors do? What happens the day after that decision? And, And have I sketched out a reasonable scenario. I think I think it is a reasonable scenario. I think so. One thing that happens at the state level is that throughout the South and um, the Midwest, there are a number of states that already have Roe trigger laws in place, which is to say that if Roe versus Wade um, is overturned or formally disavowed in some way, and I think a case like this would be would be considered an overruling because it would basically allow a kind of pre valuability ban on abortion. Um, then abortion is just per se illegal in those jurisdictions. And so that pretty much hollows out the South and the Midwest as regions in which abortion cannot be obtained. And it leaves the West Coast, um, you know, the, the states in the West Coast and the Northeast as really the only places where in the United States you can get an abortion. So that's sort of throwing it to the states. And then we have this kind of divided. Right. So I just want to make that clear for folks, because because I think I think some people believe that the Supreme Court in a ruling about Roe would have the effect of banning abortion everywhere, no matter what, as a, as a principle of federal law. That is not the case. It will be a, up to each individual state. States will, like states can do that. Yes. Um, so it, it'll likely be a challenge to a particular state law and different states can have different laws about what they prohibit or provide for in their respective jurisdictions. And so right now, there are a number of states, mostly in the South and the Midwest, that have these trigger laws that would make abortion absolutely illegal in their jurisdictions um, if Roe were disrupted in some way. And then there are states like New York, for example, that have much more um, wide-ranging access um, and, and have actually taken steps to codify into their state laws the protections that Roe provided. So New York is one of those laws. So it sets up um, not unlike the 
pre-Civil War United States, um, a kind of sort of safe zone for reproductive rights and then other places that are not safe zones. And, you know, maybe you can travel toward them if, if you have the means to do so. Maybe you can't. But that doesn't, um, I think, the full thread is that emboldened by a change in the jurisprudence of the court and emboldened by these trigger laws that will automatically go into effect in these various states, Congress could also act. Um, maybe to pass a law that amends the Constitution to provide for fetal personhood, maybe to just sort of pass a blanket law that would prohibit, as a matter of federal law, various kinds of abortion procedures. And that would actually have impact across the country, regardless of any individual state's provisions for abortion. But what if if the Senate and the House are in Democratic hands when this heartbeat bill gets ruled upon in my scenario? What does Congress have the ability to do with respect to those states in the South that have those trigger laws that would ban abortion? So some have argued that Congress could pass a law to essentially codify in federal law some of the protections for Roe that were overturned um, in whatever this decision was. And that could surely happen. And if, if Congress is held by the Democrats and the presidency is held by the Democrats, that too um, seems likely. But then there's surely going to be a legal challenge to it. It will progress through whatever district court and then circuit court and then likely to the Supreme Court. And there you still have your super, your conservative supermajority. So all roads kind of lead to the court in that respect. All right, let's talk about something in the nearer term, the Affordable Care Act. A challenge to the Affordable Care Act is supposed to be heard in oral argument the week after uh, Election Day, November 3rd. Is it correct, as some experts have been saying, that whether or not there is a ninth justice confirmed that the Affordable Care Act is essentially doomed because a 4-4 decision, even a 4-4 decision, would leave the lower court's decision in place, and that was bad for the ACA? Yes, that, that's correct. Um, so this was a case that was held over from October term 2019. So there's already, I think, a little bit of strategy to that. Um, the decision to hold it over, I think, was perhaps to avoid having the ACA and the court be sort of associated in the minds of the voters as they went to the ballot box. Although, given everything that's happened over the last week, unclear whether that strategy is going to work out. But it is the case that the court will hear oral arguments on this second challenge, third challenge rather, to the ACA um, just a week after the election. And, and as you say, if there are nine justices, there are surely five to gut the ACA. I mean, again, Chief Justice Roberts in 2012 was the vote, the pivotal vote on with the liberals to uphold the ACA. Um, unclear whether his vote alone would even be helpful if there are there is a nine-person court with six conservative justices. Um, if there is just an eight-person court, then you could imagine the court splitting four to four um, if the chief justice joined the liberal wing. Um, and he doesn't have to. It could still be five to three. But if it were split four to four, then the lower court ruling, which was against the ACA, would be the law going forward. All right. Well, thanks for that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it is worth noting. It's important for people to understand because I think there's a lot of confusion about how these things work. And I think clear answers on what the consequences will be, I think are important for people to make up their mind about voting and how important the court is. Can I ask you another longer term question? Is marriage equality at risk? So again, I think this is a little bit like the question of, you know, how Roe has sort of fared over the last 40 years. Um, 
as you know, Preet, in 2015, the court decided Obergefell versus Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage across the country. And I'm not sure that the court would be willing, especially so soon after that decision was rendered, to overturn it entirely. But there are lots of things that the court can do to trim back the kinds of protections that LGBTQ people can expect and certainly same-sex couples can expect. And we've already seen some glimmers of what this might look like. So in 2016, in a case called Paven versus Smith, this was a challenge to a state birth certificate registration um, that prevented parents of the same sex from both being listed on a child's birth certificate. We had then, you know, brand new justice, Neil Gorsuch, write an opinion in which he argued that Obergefell did recognize a right to same-sex marriage, but it didn't go so far as to limit the states from imposing restrictions rooted in biology on certain administrative regulatory procedures, like the registration of a birth certificate. So that's just kind of a biological difference that the states can have. Like there's a mother and there's a father and you don't have to recognize two mothers. You can only recognize one mother because that's biology. And so he's already sort of on record as saying this and there may well be others who are persuaded by that particular um, position. And so that's one way, like in just sort of how birth certificates and parental rights are assigned to same-sex couples, that could be imperiled. There's also, of course, um, the whole question of the interaction between religious liberty on the one hand and anti-discrimination law on the other. And the court took this up in 2018 in a case called Masterpiece Cake Shop. This was the famous bakery case in which um, the Christian evangelical baker refused to make a cake for the wedding of a same-sex couple. The court never actually decided the merits of it. It kind of punted on this. And this is one of Justice Kennedy's last decisions for the court before retiring. But in this upcoming term, there is a case called City of Philadelphia versus Fulton in which the court will have to sort of take on a follow-on question to those issues raised in Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, which is whether or not a religious organization must be required as a condition of receiving federal or city grants or um, state and local grants has to comply with the city's anti-discrimination ordinance, which requires it to serve all comers, including same-sex couples. So this is an issue dealing with an adoption agency that refuses to allow same-sex couples to either adopt or foster children. So these are all the kinds of questions that might be around the corner that will surely Um, make a dent in the way that same-sex couples live their lives, even if it doesn't necessarily overrule Obergefell versus Hodges. Do you want to opine on this potential democratic threat to, quote-unquote, pack the court, expand the court, if Trump succeeds in getting his nominee confirmed? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I mean, I I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm on record in the New York Times as saying that, you know, I don't think term limits for the Supreme Court are a good idea. I think I wrote that in 2016 or something in one of those debates with another law professor. And, you know, I certainly understand the concerns that people have about adding more members to the court. I think the reason why, though, you are seeing these kinds of proposals and, you know, they're increasing in their urgency is because I think people are really 
angry and, and deeply worried about the prospect of minority rule. I mean, you know, there is already this episode in 2016 in which Mitch McConnell refused to hold a hearing for President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. And instead, they, you know, they waited for quite a long time. And then Trump was elected and Neil Gorsuch was appointed to that seat. And, you know, this looks like a complete about face, like, you know, and they're not waiting for the election to be completed before identifying a successor for Justice Ginsburg. Um, you know, people are voting as we speak. And the Democratic legitimacy arguments that McConnell launched in 2016 seem to be even more pressing now. So this kind of looks like a naked power grab, and it is. And I think the calls to rebalance the court um, are just that. I mean, I think they're an effort to recognize that the court that we have, the court that we will have, is the result of a kind of minority rule that would not happen if democratic processes were allowed to play out. And allowing the court, which has such a profound say in, in, in so many issues that affect people's lives, to not be on the ballot to not be determined, at least in part, by the people feels a little bit like the tyranny of the minority. And so I think that's what's animating these claims. Um, I don't know if they're good or bad, but I think that the circumstances that have prompted them are definitely not good for a healthy democracy. I will take that as a hedge. I mean, look, but part of, the, part of the issue is, and I don't know how many people appreciate this, based on the vagaries of when justices have retired or passed away and who gets elected and what time frame, you know, Jimmy Carter was president for four years, got zero nominees. Trump president for four years gets three. 15 of the last 19, I believe. 15 of the last 19, over 52 years. It's a huge disproportionate number. Those nominees have come from Republican presidents, far out of whack compared to how many years Republicans have had the presidency. And so that in combination with the maneuverings of the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, and others is just, I think, for some people, a little too much to bear. And, and a rebalance seems in order. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think people understand intuitively that the court is a counter-majoritarian institution, right? I mean, these people are appointed for life. They're, they're not accountable to the voter in any way, except at this moment when they are nominated, where they reflect the choices of someone who has been democratically approved, um, um, who has a mandate, if you will, from the people and by a body that also has a mandate from the people. And you know, I think a lot of this could have been avoided if 2016 and what happened with Merrick Garland had not occurred. I mean, I think that really was the pivotal moment. And, you know, it was outrageous what the Republicans did, um, it was outrageous that the Democrats didn't fight harder. But you know, I, I believe most people expected Hillary Clinton to win and that the issue would be moot in any respect. But obviously, that's not how it happened. And you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is the worst. But Democrats should have fought harder over the effort to grab that seat and to keep it until the election was completed. So this point about the court being counter-majoritarian intentionally in the structure of the constitution. That's certainly true, but does there come a time when that gets way, way out of whack? And people have been making this comparison to the Dred Scott court, you know, from the 1850s. And I think maybe other times as well. My, my question is, you know, imagine Trump gets his nominee in place and then the court is static 
for years. I mean, I guess, you know, Justice Breyer um, is getting on in age, but but suppose you have the 6-3, and suppose he gets reelected and you have a 7-2 conservative court 20 years hence, but the Congress and the general population of the United States has moved significantly further left. And there's good reason to believe that that might be so. What happens to that conflict between where the country is and where the court is some years from now? Well, we've had one episode in our history where that conflict was really clear. And, and that, of course, was the conflict between the court and President Roosevelt over the New Deal. And, you know, it was a little different because that was a 5-4 court and you had the four horsemen, um, Justices Butler, Van Devanter, um, Sutherland and McReynolds, all voting against the New Deal legislation. And that was what prompted Roosevelt to talk about adding more members to the court. This is probably even more extreme, um, as you set it up, I mean, because this will be a situation where it's not a kind of 5-4 evenly or precariously balanced court where one justice may tip things or you know, there's a chance of the you know, president's program or a policy agenda surviving because one person shifts his or her vote. This is a solid conservative majority, and you need definitely more than one person to tip a balance here. And I think that's part of why this feels really different and why these calls for court reform have become so much more urgent and why it feels like the court is not just counter-majoritarian right now, but maybe even anti-majoritarian. And that's not a place, I think, where we have been before, um, even though we've been, I think, in situations that are close to it, it, I don't think that it's ever felt quite as precarious as it feels now. Melissa Murray, thanks so much. Long overdue. At some point, I hope to see you back at NYU campus. Likewise. Thanks for having me. My conversation with Melissa Murray continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Try out the membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. You'll get access to the full archive of exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, the Cyberspace podcast with John Carlin, the United Security podcast co-hosted by Lisa Monaco and Ken Weinstein, audio essays by Ellie Honig and me, and more. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. As Melissa and I discussed, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a significant and influential career as a legal advocate for women and minorities long before she joined the Supreme Court. So this week, I'd like to end the program with a couple of recordings that give a glimpse of Justice Ginsburg's brilliance during her days with the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union. In January 1973, RBG delivered her first ever oral argument before the Supreme Court. The case, Frontiera v. Richardson, involved a challenge to a federal law that said female military spouses automatically qualified for dependent benefits, but males did not. Ginsburg, acting as a friend of the court, offered a passionate argument on behalf of First Lieutenant Sharon Frontiero, a young physical therapist in the Air Force. Ginsburg argued that denying her the right to claim her husband Joseph, a full-time student, as a dependent, violated her constitutional rights. Proponents believe that appropriate interpretation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments would secure equal rights and responsibilities for men and women. But they also stressed that such interpretation was not yet discernible, and in any event, the amendment would serve an important function in removing even the slightest doubt that equal rights for men and women is fundamental constitutional principle. 
In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, Amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. In conclusion, Amicus joins appellants in requesting that this court reverse the judgment entered below and remand the case with instructions to grant the relief requested in appellant's complaint. Thank you, Thank you uh, Mrs. Ginsburg. Two years later, Ginsburg argued before the court in Weinberger v. Weisenfeld, a case concerning gender discrimination in Social Security benefits. In a move that became central to Ginsburg's larger strategy, she argued for a widower husband who didn't receive benefits following his wife's tragic death because he was a man. As Ginsburg argues here, the discrimination reinforced gendered expectations that hurt both men and women. This attempt to wrap a remedial rationale around a 1939 statute originating in and reinforcing traditional sex-based assumptions should attract strong suspicion. In fact, Congress had in view male breadwinners, male heads of household, and the women and children dependent upon them. Its attention to the families of insured male workers, their wives and children, is expressed in a scheme that heaps further disadvantage on the woman worker. Far from rectifying economic discrimination against women, the scheme conspicuously discriminates against women workers by discounting the value to their family of their gainful employment. And it intrudes on private decision-making in an area in which the law should maintain strict neutrality. For when federal law provides a family benefit based on a husband's gainful employment, but absolutely bars that benefit based on a wife's gainful employment, the impact is to encourage the traditional division of labor between man and woman, to underscore twin assumptions. First, that labor for pay, including attendant benefits, is the prerogative of men. And second, that women, but not men, appropriately reduce their contributions in the working life to care for children. These are two of the first recordings showcasing Justice Ginsburg's deft legal mind and passion for justice. She left behind a lifetime of them, and we hope that in the coming weeks you too will search out some of her opinions, dissents, and interviews, and that they will inspire you to fight for justice with the same spirit and zeal as the one and only Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Melissa Murray. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. 
or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Calvin Lord, Jeff Eisenman, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Margot Malley. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.